Hey guys, just a quick note before we jump into this week's episode of InStride. InStride is brought to you by RideIQ. RideIQ is a mobile app with hundreds of on-demand listen-while-you-ride audio lessons taught by eventing, jumper, and dressage coaches. In other words, with RideIQ, you can take a lesson from an incredible coach during any ride you'd like. No hauling and no scheduling. Whether you're looking to add structure to your rides or try new exercises or build confidence, RideIQ can help. Membership is only $29.99 per month, and every membership automatically includes a two-week free trial. Try it for yourself today by downloading the RideIQ mobile app on iPhone or Android. Hey everyone, Jessa here, and I'm here with Sinead, and we have some really exciting news to share with you. We are starting a new podcast. Don't worry though, Instride is not going anywhere. This is a new show in addition to Instride, and I get to co-host this one, so I'm especially excited. And Sinead, I know you have written down a bit of an outline for this new show, so maybe you could share that with us to give listeners a bit of an idea about what this is all about. Yeah, I'm really, really excited about this concept, and what we're looking for are people in the equestrian field, not necessarily riders. You could you could be starting an equestrian business. You could be looking to go to a championship. You could be starting um, going out and, and starting and becoming a farrier, any, anything like that. But it's it's searching for people that have dreams that, that aren't the type of dreams that you get lost in during the day, but the ones that keep you up at night, the ones that create a tightness in your chest that if you're not in forward trajectory towards them, you are really struggling. And these dreams are destinations that you know that you were put on this earth to do. We want to follow along with these with these individuals over the next year. We want to listen to their strategies. We want to listen to their dreams. We want to be next to them when they have highs, when they have lows. And we want to really go on that journey together. And, um, and I think one of the big goals behind this, Jessa, is just creating a community that has has boldness to it that creates some some courage and that we want it more than we fear it so i'm really excited about this i can't wait even listening to you describe it i have chills and i feel so lucky to be able to be one of the hosts on it too so if that's you or if that's somebody you know reach out to us and tell us about that person at team at ride-iq.com and we'll get back to you and i'm sure we'll have some amazing people to meet and stories to share so stay tuned for that as well on today's episode of in stride Sinead is talking to dr elizabeth callahan who goes by Didi. Didi is an equine veterinarian and a highly regarded sport horse breeder in the u.s she's also competed to the intermediate level in eventing Didi's breeding farm cool nagrina is off the eastern shore of maryland in a town called oxford she's been breeding horses since 1985 the same year she graduated from veterinary school in virginia Didi has bred very successful horses across disciplines including three of doug Payne's upper-level horses, Quantum Leap, Cuberon, and Camarillo. In 2009, she was the U.S. Equestrian Federation's Eventing Breeder of the Year. Today, Sinead and Didi touch on several interesting facets of sport horse breeding, including how to bridge the gap between riders and breeders, what she looks for in mares and stallions, the evolution of breeding in the U.S., and more. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm really excited to have uh, Dr. Elizabeth Callahan, otherwise known as Didi, to friends and everyone in the horse industry, basically, and probably family as well. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem. So I am so excited to talk to you. We've chatted a few times, and I've tried to save some of my questions so that we can share them <laughs> with, 
with the world that's obviously listening to our Ride IQ podcast. But so you're a, a veterinarian as well as one of the United States top breeders. And I want to start not at the beginning, but at about two and a half weeks ago at Maryland, where I mean, it's pretty incredible. I'm sure in the moment you you recognize that. But as I was kind of going through and getting uh, reacquainted with you and your history and your horses, there seemed to be a real coming together of things at Maryland. I mean, you had horses in the four-year-olds, the five-year-olds, the three-star, the five-star in your home state of Maryland all over five days. I mean, I don't know how you actually stood still. <laughs> I yeah, bet it, was, you didn't. <laughs> it was pretty well. And they were all going at the same time, it seemed like. So I was like running from one ring to the other. We have three days of comp- dressage competition and the, the horses are all competing at the same time in different rings. So yeah, it was really, it was really exciting. And I just had a yearling that just was at the West Coast championships as well. So uh, the IPH. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That one. Yep, that he won. Yeah, <laughs> yeah out of a totally different, totally different Maryline than anybody else. So that was that was kind of neat. Yeah, so exciting. So yep. talk talk to us a little bit about about. I mean, I guess we back up to the beginning now. Like, where did it where did it start? Where did this breeding idea start? Because, like all good ideas, it starts when you're at a vulnerable moment. And so I I had a. When I was in vet school, I started eventing. I had never really done. I'd been in pony club, but I always had young horses. And so I never like got to do anything fun. I was always like a C1 or something like that. I got out of vet school and I had a thoroughbred mare that really wasn't a very good mover for the hunter. So I decided I'd start eventing. Well, I really liked it. And then that mare was not particularly suitable for anything else at that point. Uh, So I decided I'd buy a thoroughbred mare and breed it because I wanted something that was a little bit more competitive in dressage and was a little bit better jumper. So I bought one mare and bred it. And then, boy, then there was another mare and then there was another mare. And before I knew it, I had like this breeding program. And I I guess I didn't really necessarily start out breeding event horses, but that seems to be what I've kind of gotten into. And I want to say specialized because that's not the word, but that seems to be where my babies are going now. Mm. So. Hmm. So when you when you first when you bred this first the first mare, so you you had a you had you wanted to basically breed a, a more competitive an, an, event, an event horse for myself, yeah, for like yourself. you know something that that would be as fabulous mover and a really good jumper, but an amateur temperament, kind of like the unicorn. I wanted to breed a unicorn, and I probably didn't get that, but it kind of started. Then you're like, well, I can improve upon this. Now I can, mm. now I can add a stallion that jumps better into this. So it kind of is a selective process where you're trying to to improve what you have, picking it apart, and and trying to improve what you have, and going for the next step. So this, the first foal I got, well, it needed to be this, or it needed to be this, and mm. so you know, that's kind of how I keep moving with it. And how have you felt like in that process? Because this is, I mean, this is going to sound random but being like like authentic and in those moments and really seeing things for as they are as opposed to what you want them to be or what you hope them to be is that something that is is difficult i mean talk so about that. it's become easier over the years and i think that that requires just seeing lots and lots of horses like mm-hmm. you might think you have the best thing ever and then you compare it to something that's better and you're like oh really she's mm-hmm. not quite as good as i thought and I think you have to be critical and knowing that there's no perfect horse. There's, there's never mm-hmm. been a perfect horse. Everything's got faults. But what faults 
what could you improve upon? And then there's some things where I've had a couple babies where I'm like, oh, this, this was not a good cross. It might be fine as a trail horse or something like that, but it's not going to be an upper level eventer. And you learn from your mistakes. It's like everything mm-hmm. else. So I think that you have to, I've, I've registered my foals with German registries that come over to the US. They have a little bit more, at least back when I started 30 years ago, they had a lot more experience judging young horses than anybody in the US did. And mm. so using that kind of feedback, oh, well, I thought my fall was really nice. And I went to this inspection with 30 other foals and oh, it's not quite as nice as I thought it was. I think mm. you have to be willing to realize that there's always something you can improve in your horses. Always. There's mm. never the perfect horse and be willing to kind of take that feedback and do something with it. So when these registries, registries come over, like how is that? And, and please be uh, kind to me as a beginner novice in the in the breeding world when the registries come over and you're using that that like how does the feedback come to you like is it in scoring is it in description is it in a conversation how is that feedback delivered so it kind of depends on the registry some Mm. of the registries are very blunt and Mm. are very critical i like this but this foal had say a short neck or it it lacks a top line or something like that others of them it's in scoring uh, mm-hmm. like the movement is this, it, this foal showed great movement, could be a little freer in the shoulder. Or this foal was very nice, except was not correct in its front legs. Mm-hmm. So I think that using that, especially uh, as a veterinarian, I have a pretty good idea of what confirmation I'm looking at. But having mm-hmm. the whole movement where you're saying this foal really, it's a, a lovely hunter type. Uh, it's very flat knee, but it doesn't come from behind. So I mm-hmm. think that those type of things really help. This foal was really underneath itself or or showed showed great length of stride or whatever. I think that's what a lot of the the registries will do. Um, mm-hmm. I think they've become kinder over the years. When they first came over, it was they could be like I said, they could be quite blunt and mm-hmm. very discouraging to new breeders. But I think that things have changed. I think the quality of the horses in the U.S. has changed. So we're actually seeing better horses. So mm-hmm. you don't have kind of the the ones we saw 30 years ago that were not really up to quality standards. Mm-hmm. And was that due to just education or? Yes, I think so. I think education and and just seeing the numbers. We don't see anywhere the numbers they do in Europe as far as our Mm -hmm. foals and everything like that. We're also way spread out. So I don't see these foals in California, where in Germany, all these foals will come together and you can see a large number at one point. We don't have that in the U.S. You see your foal and you see maybe your neighbor's foal. And unless you go to inspection or something, you don't have anything to compare it to. Right, right. So when you're looking at that, and I, we had had this conversation briefly, but a yearling, a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, like if I'm looking at a four-year-old, I can normally figure out which end is where it should be. But younger than that, what are you really looking for as far as, I mean, can you t- just look at it a little bit afar and, and say, yeah, it looks like it covers the ground lightly. It looks like it's in proportion. What age are you kind of looking for what? I think it varies. I think as a up to about six months, I think you have a pretty good idea of what your foal is going to move like and everything like that. As yearlings, it's a, just a crapshoot. Like your yearling could be so high behind and so down in front. You have some that are that are, look great the whole way. That's pretty mm. unusual. And I think that you, if you have a a yearling that's pretty well balanced and everything, great. But it's so hard to judge yearlings. Yeah. And then two year olds and three year olds again, it depends on them. I I think that some of them look very mature for their age. Others of them still look gangly and stuff until they're four or five. So I think that just the athletic ability, watching them loose, watching them move, seeing how they they balance themselves and stuff really helps. 
are you going to be able to tell whether they're going to be an eight mover? I, I don't know as a yearling or a two-year-old. I, mm. I, I struggle with that. I mean, I think I have a pretty good idea as a foal and you hope it matures into what you think. It doesn't mm-hmm. always happen that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a three-year-old, by the time they get to three, you have a pretty good idea of what they're going to be like. But I think it's very, very difficult to judge yearlings and, and two-year-olds. I think you're going mm-hmm. more on your genetics at that point and mm-hmm. seeing whether they have any obvious conformational defects. Right, right. And what about if you have a, like gelding them, like when, if if you've got, is there a significant change from the time that you, like, will it make a significant difference if you're gelding them as a two-year-old or three-year-old? How do you play with that on the? I think that the studies have shown that gelding early before puberty will increase their height. I think it's like an inch or an inch and a half. So they'll actually, their growth plates don't close. So they'll actually get a little taller. As far as any other things this whole stallion characteristics of the neck and everything like that. I, I don't I don't know if that's a benefit or not. And personally, I like to geld my foals early, like six to eight months, because I don't want to have colts around. I just, they're yeah. a pain in the ass. And I mean, I just yeah. don't want to have them. I, I don't have the place to keep them separate. If you had a big field and you could turn out all those yearling and two-year-old colts for themselves, and they can beat each other up. That's fine. I don't have the room for it. So mm-hmm. I'd rather geld them early and be done with it. I'm not sure, unless you have a horse that's stallion potential, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think they need to be intact after the age of two. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and yeah, exactly. Unless you're totally set up for that. So you and your husband run Cool Negrana Sport Horse Farm in mm-hmm. Oxford, Maryland. Yep. Now, is, how is your your husband involved in all this? <laughs> the poor, <laughs> Other the poor man. People. The poor man never had horses before he met me. So he's involved <laughs> with everything at this point. So he's the general farm manager. He does all the fencing repair, which with horses, there's always fencing repair. He he helps pick up the field. He helps lead horses in and out. He helps foal. Like he, the poor man, he mows, he bush hogs in the summer. He like does anything that needs to be done. So the, the poor guy, he's foaled out mares by himself when I've had to go places and that kind of stuff. So he, he kind of got immersed in fire, I guess. The poor man. Hey. <laughs> uh, and ha- and does he love it now? I mean, does he have the same type of passion about the horses as you, or is he passionate about you? And therefore, that again comes. It depends on how many horses we have that, that how passionate he is. And the more horses we have, the less passionate he becomes. So yes, he loves seeing them do well. The I, I think we I have nine stalls and thirteen horses right now. So that kind of yeah. And we're going into winter time, so that kind of tempers the enthusiasm a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the poor the poor man does everything. Halter break helps halter break things and uh, everything. So, oh, that's that's amazing. That's amazing. Now, where did the name come from, Kulnagrena? So, my mother years ago used to read these little paperback Harlequin romances. Do you remember they were like these little thin little romances that were a dime a dozen. You could buy yeah. twenty of them for like twenty dollars or whatever. And there was one place in there where the romantic thing they had a place named cool negrena which is supposedly gaelic for corner in the sun oh. so i'm not really sure it is but that's what we picked and it sounded good so that's i what mean it is. It, all irish stories have a have a little bit of a raised eyebrow to them yeah, coming yeah. From a very so i'm not really sure i'm not sure really, <laughs> hopefully it means somewhat close to that that it doesn't mean something else but that's where it came from oh i love that and so so and when did you start when did you buy the farm? When did you end up with that? We came back, I came back from vet school in 85. And so um, we kind of developed it in stages because like every horse operation, you can't afford to do anything, everything at once. So mm-hmm. we've kind of developed it in stages. It's about 25 acres. So 
Oh, wow. That's incredible. So tell me, like, so let's go back to when you kind of started out. I mean, was it kind of trial by fire? I mean, obviously, you've come out of vet school. So you've got that part of it, hopefully. You've got that side of the equation down. But as you kind of started going down this path, I mean, what did you bump up against when you first started? Because, like, again, like we were talking about, there has to be a fair amount of, like, uh, self-reflection, some checks, seeing where I'm at, adjusting where needed and moving on. Like how, how did you deal with that in the beginning? Yeah. So you, I would buy, buy a mare that I thought was a nice mare and you got to go back 30 years ago. We didn't have the, the internet. I don't think we even had like VHS tapes. It was really rare to get it. So when you mm. looked at stallions, you looked at stallions that were local because transported semen was just starting at that point. So mm. really you were pretty limited to stallions in your area. I mean, Literally, I can remember the, the first transported semen. So you were kind of limited to stallions you heard about. The, the big thing you looked at was the, the horse issue of the Chronicle, the stallion issue, which was a book at that point, because that's where you saw stallions. You had to order the videotapes. The owners would send them to you. You'd have to send them back because you mm-hmm. only had one VHS tape. So I think that having access to all the information we have now makes a huge difference in your stallion choice and what you're able to do. So mm-hmm. yeah, so I would have a mare that I, th- I thought was nice, but I hadn't seen enough horses. And so I'd breed her to a stallion locally that I thought was nice and get but an okay foal. I'd sell that foal and it would be a nice amateur horse or something like that. And I think just then I would see, I thought, oh, this mare is nicer. And I'd start learning about bloodlines, especially the thoroughbred bloodlines, because I really still believe in a lot of blood. Mm-hmm. and uh, start looking for horses with those and the access now that you could find horses that are in Kentucky or in Pennsylvania or something like that where I can find mares that that I like I think makes a huge difference I mean I, th- I think that's just the a- the ability to get the information and look at so many different horses again that's it's education is what it amounts to and the mares that you're looking at, are, are they mainly, like, are you looking at racehorses, event horses, jumping horses? I mean, obviously you're talking thoroughbreds. So where are you, where are you finding these? What are you looking for? So I'm looking for a type. And it's one of those things that's, that's a little hard to describe. I'm looking for a big frame mare that has a big shoulder, uh, correct, and is a really good mover for a thoroughbred. And again, we're limited a little bit, but I look for a mare that's very elastic as far as thoroughbreds go, because I think to me, that's the most important thing. Most of my horses have been off the track mares that Mm -hmm. I've gotten. I have some second and third generation mares that I've raised too, but I really still like the thoroughbreds. So I see a picture of one and then I'll look at its bloodlines and see, gosh, I really like that. This looks like a really good sport horse pedigree in it. How does the mare move? Because sometimes the pedigree doesn't tell you the whole story. And uh, and then I'm kind of cheap. So I, I want inexpensive mares because I don't, there's a big controversy in the warm blood world about whether you, a performance mare makes the best brood mare. And I think that that's something to think about. I think the bell curve is really in effect that, that individuals, the individuals that are really at the high end of the bell curve that are exceptional individuals are unlikely to reproduce themselves. Hmm. That's just the way statistics go. So mm-hmm. Yes, you might have a mare that's jumping 1.6 meter or it's a five-star horse. It doesn't mean it's going to be able to produce itself. Hmm. And I think especially with event horses, there's so much more than just, there's so much of the training and the desire to do it that you Mm -hmm. can't necessarily breed in. Mm -hmm. So the mares I look for are just big athletic thoroughbred mares. I'd like a turf pedigree if I can get it. It's kind of hard to find these days in the U.S. And 
because we're we don't in the U.S. We're very interested in short-term gain, and the sprinters uh, can race earlier, race longer, or race and get money. Yeah. And so we see a lot more sprinting pedigrees than we do turf horses. Hmm. So it's hard to find kind of that turf pedigree without really, really searching for it. And so I try to breed to good jumping, good moving jumper stallions and hope that I get the athletic ability of the thoroughbred and the jump of the stallion. And sometimes I do and sometimes you don't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking at the the turf pedigree, is that because in there there's there's more like there's more wind work? They've obviously held up to doing this longer. There's more bone. What is it in that turf? There's there. And they're also kind of a different type. They're usually tend to be kind of longer bigger framed horses. Um, Mm -hmm. and they're usually built, uh, more, I'm going to use the term more uphill than a lot of the sprinters are. Um, Mm -hmm. so they're just kind of a bigger framed, bigger type horse. So Mm -hmm. that's, that, and that's kind of what I'm looking for. And what are there any, and this might be a myth, I don't know, but as far as like veterinary issues, other than just correct confirmation, are there things that you've found that do get passed down? like more tendencies towards certain things? I think definitely temperament or, or, or yeah. it's really interesting. I've had some ET babies that are raised completely with their surrogate moms and they have the same mannerisms that their real moms do that they're not even mm. in the same field. I mean, it's, mm. it's just amazing that type of thing. I do think confirmational faults and they've done some studies on what is inherited and what isn't, um, at least mm. the percentages and confirmation, especially front leg confirmation is inherited. Um, mm. As far as anything else, I, I mean, I think that type sometimes comes through, sometimes it doesn't, mm-hmm. but I, I tend to, and I don't know about the OCD. And I mean, obviously I stay away from something that's crippled as a foal, uh, yeah. but as far as if they've been on the racetrack and they've raced, I figured they've at least gotten through that part of it. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. And are you vetting these horses like full vettings and the mares? No. <laughs> no, I well, mean, you're, you're the vet. They're, but they're like, brood. They're, so they're brood mares. They're destined to be brood mares. So I, I want to make sure they don't have like parrot mouse or something like that. And they have good breeding confirmation. But if I've seen them move and I like the type, I buy them. Yeah. But, but yeah, I guess that's kind of my, my thought. Like, are any of these something that you would see on a radiograph? Would any of that type of something uh, come through? Be, would a, a horse have more tendencies to have this certain type of injury or this or that? But it's, no, it's I don't. More... I, I mean, if you're looking at correct confirmation, like I do think you have something with really long pasterns, you got to be careful. Ooh, mm-hmm. Is that what you want to reproduce or something with crooked legs or maybe something that has a history of OCD? The thing with OCD is that there's so many causes. I mean, genetics are one yeah. thing, but also, also exercise, feeding, et cetera, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. so no, I'm not vetting these mares that I get. And mm-hmm. if they've had previous injuries on the track, they bowed a tendon or something, that doesn't, that doesn't mean anything to me as far as breeding wise. If their right. confirmation's correct. I mean, obviously, if they've right. got these hugely long pasterns and little tiny feed or something like that, that's different. But that's not what mm-hmm. I'd be looking for. Gotcha. Interesting. Are there any kind of like do a little myth busters, anything that you've kind of heard about along the, that you just kind of are listening to people and you're like, this is this is ridiculous <laughs> like around around breeding, around that type of. You mean like picking <laughs> picking stallions or things like yeah. that? Yeah, I, I guess I have a. I, I think they're exceptional individuals that can have a dressage back dressage breeding background that can overcome that. Mm-hmm. Is that what I want to do? Do I want to breed to a primarily dressage stallion 
and hope that I get an upper level event horse? No. And I think that's mm-hmm. that's one of the, the things I see. Now, for your amateur horse, for your novice horse, that's probably fine. But if I'm looking for an upper level athlete, yes, that horse may be really successful and have a dressage background, but that's not what I, again, the law of statistics is going to tell me that statistically that horse is not going to outproduce himself. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to stay away from that type of thing. So I, that's the one thing I see is a lot of people breeding to horses with a lot of dressage background. And it, it, yeah. it might it might work out, but yeah, the law of averages says it probably won't. Yeah, yeah. you got to yeah, think about what exactly. Yeah, st- start. <laughs> it's already such a risky game. Start. Right, right, right. In the, in the positives of it. So when we get back to this is the the conversation that happens all the time, and I find it's a conversation, honestly, sometimes like everybody can talk about it, but not everybody knows about it is is U.S. bred horses versus horses bred abroad. Like, obviously, like I would love to buy everything, including like my clothes from American companies. But in the in what's practical, sometimes it, it, it doesn't work. So where, where do those lines, where are those lines? Like why, why in the U.S. are we breeding, not breeding as much as we should be? Or are we getting there? And why are we buying overseas? Like can, that, it's a big topic, but can you it is. kind of break that down in like an hour? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there are a couple of things that I think about. First of all, it's the size of the country. You have a horse in the Midwest. It's expensive to go. It's expensive to have people know about it. I think that versus, and again, we talked about the inspections where all the horses come together in in Europe. We can't do that here. We can't have all the horses come together in a certain area so that you as a rider could look at them and say, oh, I really like this two or three-year-old. For instance, the the Irish sales, Goresbridge and the Monarch sale and things like that, there's a large number of rideable age horses that come together that you can see at one time. We don't have that here in the U.S. And I think it would be unrealistic to expect that to occur just because of the geographical area that we have to cover. I'm, I'm not going to ship my two or three-year-old in to, uh, to say, Kentucky to have it be looked at and then ship it back home where, mm-hmm. for instance, Goresbridge and stuff, they can certainly do that all, all at once. I think that's first the geographical location. The second is just connecting people. We do not have, a, a, in this U.S., a series of young horse trainers where people send their horses to be looked at, to be started, so that you as a rider can come look at it and say, here's, here are five three-year-olds that mm-hmm. I've got started. They're ready to go on. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of it too. And I do think in the U.S. we still have, uh, as breeders, we're not always critical enough about our own stock to know mm-hmm. what is an upper level prospect or not. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's something that just takes time and education. And I do think that there's a market for all kinds of event horses. There's a market for the amateur lower level horse. There's a market for the in-between horse and there's a market for the upper level. But breeders have to know what they're breeding for and and kind of can't be all purpose and have a horse that's going to fit every single category. I think mm-hmm. that's a little bit unrealistic too. And I just don't think riders uh, have the time or the inclination to start looking for these horses just as breeders don't know how to get from the breeding point where I have my two-year-old to the point where someone wants to buy it as a riding horse. There's a huge gap in between where we don't have the young horse starters or the young horse raisers that they do in Europe. Mm. Yeah. What, t- talk about that. So in, in Europe, there, there seems to be that, that niche, that, that profession that is kind of the two to four-year-old, like yep. they get the horses started. Like, can you talk about that a little bit? 
Well, I've not been to I've not been to see these facilities, but I do I, I do know of them. So essentially, there's a whole group of people that will buy young horses and raise them until they're ready to be started. And then there's an entire I want to say demographic that just starts young horses, which is really important. Starting your young mm-hmm. horse is just as important as riding it at the five star level because that's where these guys get their experience. And it's a well respected niche in the European market where it's not so much here. I don't think we appreciate our young horse starters as much as we should because mm-hmm. it's not easy it's not easy work and I think that there's a whole niche in Europe that that's very well respected that people mm-hmm. go to and if this young horse starter says this is a good horse riders are much more likely likely to buy something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. again it's geographical distance in the United States is a is a is difficult for that. You like you can't get horses from all over the East Coast to come in one spot like they do in Europe. Yeah. 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 I was talking to, I uh, was interviewing someone in Germany a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about when, when we end up getting a young horse from Ireland or a young horse from Germany or a young horse from, from the, the racetrack, kind of the differences in the, and I'm, I'm talking general, but the differences in the behaviors when you get them as four and five-year-olds. And it does seem like there's a real, and she, she was speaking about Germany, but she said, there's just such depth of education uh-huh. in our training that there's a real system for how to start yep. these horses. Whereas we w- we probably wouldn't have that as much here. I mean, we're, everybody's, we're working on it through a couple different programs, but have that real solid system of starting. It's, it's like America, it's for like Florida. You can have the mobile home and the mansion right next to each yeah. other. And there's so many different ways. So is that part of, well, how do we solve that? I mean, how do we move towards solving that? Like, is there, obviously there's conversations in the work. <sighs> There's, there's conversations. I think having just having that information available, like how do I find out? And, and I think the thing that brought this up to me was that four years ago, I was in Le Lyon. Uh, Doug had a quantum leap there who was selected as the Holocamp Turner Grant Award winner. And we were at dinner night before cross country, night after cross country. And I said something and Doug goes, well, you're the, you and one other person, the only breeders I know. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, here's someone who's riding internationally and knows two breeders. So what about people that, how many upper level riders actually know of any breeders? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what really brought it to me. We need some way of connecting breeders, riders, owners that want to own young event horses together in order to expand that. Like if you knew there were five breeders you could go to and find out if they had horses that, that had gone five star or were four star horses, wouldn't that be a nice thing to know without mm-hmm. searching the country or putting out a want ad or something. It's just, it's that, that ability to connect all these people together, have a network mm-hmm. that I think is the important thing. Yeah. So how do we do that? <laughs> well, I've started a kind of a spreadsheet thing. I had a, a, a good friend who put it together because I would have been totally useless with it with listing people that start young horses by area uh, people mm-hmm. that ride, people that have ridden in the young event horse um, competitions, people that have produced horses that are five-star horses, people that have bred five-star horses. So that as a breeder, I could look and say, oh, in my area, here are th- three people that start mm-hmm. horses. And this person has young event horse experience. I might go and look at their training program and see if it's right for my horse. But yeah. that type of, uh, I want to say a central clearinghouse might be mm-hmm. an idea for the U.S. versus just who, because you're going to be really localized to your to your area. Yeah. Yeah. When, yeah. 100%. 100%. I mean, I, I remember multiple times kind of 
yeah, like just Googling breeders and trying to right. find stuff. I mean, I, I, I honestly, the reason we connected is that I, I teach uh, a, another veterinarian who has a half sibling to one of the horses you bred. And she's, and I was talking to her, I was like, it would just be so great to meet a, a breeder, connect with somebody. And she's like, well, I know this person over here and she seems to be doing great. You should chat with her. And it's yeah. the same situation. There just seems to be this big gap. But I read something in an interview that you did somewhere, and it's kind of talking about bridging this gap between the breeder and the riders, because you've got not only the connecting of the two people, but you've got two two ends of the spectrum as far as, um, or, or bookends even, as far as figuring out a way to produce a nice horse and uh, the breeder needing, or the rider needing to to survive financially and the breeder, the same thing, being able to survive financially and making that, that kind of work. What experience have, have you had in that genre? I mean, it's, it's kind of like horse ownership, right? Like there's 15 different ways to do it. There's partnerships, there's syndications, there's full ownership, there's buying a horse as a two-year-old and then competing it. What are some different ways that you've seen this model work? Well, I know there, there are people that have syndicated young horses that as a, as a three or four-year-old, there are people that have worked out partnerships and different parts of ownership, or you take my horse and ride it and we'll sell it at the end type thing. Mm. I personally, being a veterinarian, I know how many how many things horses can kill themselves on. So I don't really want to own a horse myself. I'd rather sell it as a baby and have it go on and hopefully not kill itself with somebody else. But people do do that kind of arrangement and it's worked out for them. I think every arrangement can be different. Is there an owner that's going to put in a, will buy a horse for a, a, a rider that doesn't mind putting it in a field for two years mm-hmm. and letting it grow up? I think the thing is that mo- in my experience, most people, most upper level riders are not interested in buying young horses. And I'm young, mm-hmm. I'm talking about anything less than four. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have a place to put them, which I get. They don't, uh, some of the upper level riders no longer want to break young horses. I get that too, or I shouldn't use the word break, start young horses. I get that too. But there's, I just wish there was some way of, of, like I said, bridging that gap between the breeder holding onto this horse until it's four and then mm. having to pay to have it started. And uh, starting is very important. I, it's worth every bit. But mm-hmm. if you've already supported this horse for this amount of time, your profit's now, not that there was much to begin with in horses, but your profit's gone. And yeah. now you're paying to start this horse. And it's hard. It's hard for the breeder. And I understand the people that start these horses, it's hard work. They need to be paid for it. But mm-hmm. how do we how do we do that? I don't know. Like, yeah. is there an owner that that's interested in in working something out where they have a nice young horse for a fraction of the cost it's going to be when it's four or five? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And or even taking that exactly like if you have X amount to spend, if you have fifty thousand. I mean, to be honest, and we'll just speak frankly, like fifty thousand dollars to buy a horse right now really won't buy very much. It's training insane. horse. Training yeah. level horse, yeah, like and and not even pro- like probably the best one. Like it's right. it's it's still it's insane looking at the prices right now. But if if there's if you, I think this is obviously more of an American thing. Like we're just in a hurry, right? We're just in a right. hurry. Right. So it's uh, if you can take that fifty and buy two young horses, two two year olds, and put them out in the field, then at least you're doubling your chance, right? And, and probably when those horses are or five or six, you wouldn't be able to buy them. Like you, I mean, you just can't buy it at this stage. So trying to figure out something along those lines that we're getting a little bit as riders. And again, we're just trying to get different creative ways out there as riders. If, if we want to take some of the responsibility in growing 
the U.S. breeding program, that's probably a little bit the direction yeah. we need to go as well. Like what we need to add into our 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 kind of it's not going to be everything, but it's going to be part of the string. But it's two or three of these over here so that we can help promote it on that side as well. Are there other things as far as like when you look at like rider responsibilities or ways that that we can help this? And also why it's important. Like, why is it, why is that important? Why is it important for the U.S. bred horses? Why is it important for U.S. riders to really think about that other than obviously financially? Well, I don't think Europe sells us their best. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly don't. I mean, money talks, but I, I don't think the best horses come over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if and the prices are just, like you said, astronomical at this point for, for good horses. Mm-hmm. Are they the best? I don't know. Like, probably not. I don't think mm-hmm. the best the best ones are probably tucked away somewhere with, that are never shown to to U.S. people that are coming to look for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's important that way. And I think certainly what you were talking about, where you do buy two or three, and maybe they're not upper level horses, but maybe they turn out to be a prelim packer, which is going to make its money back on what you put into it. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it turns out to be a five-star horse. Maybe it turns out to be someone's fox hunter. You don't know. You're not going to win on all of them. But I think that you can make your money back doing something like that. A good horse is a good horse. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do think that we need to try and support U.S. breeding, uh, whether, and we've relied in a lot of times in the past on off-the-track thoroughbreds, and there's some fabulous off-the-track thoroughbreds. And I just don't know, especially with what's going to happen with the racing industry in the next couple of years, I just don't think that that, that amount is going to the amount of quality horses is going to keep coming. I think that, mm. I hate to say it, but I think the writing's on the wall for, for racing. The numbers are declining. I think they said this year, last year was the lowest number of thoroughbred foals that have been produced since 1984 or something really? like that. So I'm, I'm again, bring me up to speed on this. <laughs> well, I think racing is declining in popularity, um, mm-hmm. not only from an animal rights standpoint, be that as it may, but also just because it's not a, People can go to casinos now all over. Gambling is a lot easier without betting on horses. It's expensive. Keeping horses is expensive. A lot of the people are just not going to the races. The purses are smaller. And I think it just is not going to be a popular sport. Right. Like it used to be. Yeah. Yeah. And that is an interesting, certainly an interesting angle on that. I was scrolling through something that I probably shouldn't have been because it was probably like I was social media <laughs> and every now and then you wake up and you're just scrolling and how did I get here? But there was kind of a conversation going on about some people claiming horses were Irish sport horses and certain breeds, but then there was no proof of that. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I think I saw that. Yeah, which I, I kind of stopped and thought, well, that's an interesting angle. Like, can you, like, is that, can you just say a horse is something or? Well, the, the whole thing is that the Irish really feel that it's only Irish if it's born in Ireland. <laughs> so there are registries and things like that to prove parentage. And I think mm-hmm. that's a, that's, a, that's a, I, I don't think you can just say that a horse is only Irish if it comes from Ireland. There are other people that say if that horse doesn't come from, Holstein region in Germany, then it's not a Holstein or it's not a true Holsteiner. Well, the mm. genetics say that it is. I, I, I think that's just a semantic. Right. It's not really Irish unless it grows up on Irish soil and eats Irish grass and has all the advantages <laughs> Ireland has to offer. And yeah. I, I think that that's more of a 
I don't know if that's exactly true, yeah. but genetics. And you look at a lot of the Irish horses now and they have full European pedigrees. They don't yeah. have Irish pedigrees anymore. They're full European pedigrees. So is it really an Irish sport horse if it's from a stallion that stands in Germany out of a mare that was born in Germany, mm. but it happened to be born in Ireland? I, I'm not sure I kind of go with that. <laughs> but it's raised on the Irish soil. <laughs> well, as I say, yeah, it's got the Irish soil and the Irish minerals and all that kind of stuff. So it's... it's yeah. I think that's, that's, and I think most of the people are saying that are probably Irish, I think. So (laughs) there you go. Yeah. 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 So when, when (laughs) I was at the Young Event Horse this year and was, was really impressed in, in watching it and, and though I hadn't been in a few years and I was so impressed, honestly, with the, there was a lot of quality, but also the character of the horses that like they were handling horrific weather. Like it was bananas and there were one or two and that really probably shouldn't have been there, but the majority of them looked like they were handling the atmosphere really well. They were well set up for the job, all of that type of thing. It, I think it took until the last horse on the last day for Rick and I to finally understand what was going on judging wise, because it seems like it's changed a lot and it seems to be changing again for next year from what I hear. Can you, I'm, I'm sure you're pretty well versed on on the judging of the young event horses can you talk about that and if you think it should change or what you feel like are the 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 biggest marks for a horse that's going to be a four or five star horse what you would judge if you were writing the rule book so uh, again i'm not a judge i i think looking at the dressage they have to be good movers they have to be um compliant and again like you said watching these these young horses go in these conditions is just I mean it was amazing they just kind of mm. put their head down and kept going and I think jumping they have to have scope uh, they have to have forward and I think a lot of it was the desire to go forward too like mm. these horses have to want to go and out and do the job and there were some that maybe didn't look like they looked like they had to be pushed to to get around and I think one of the big things was the gallop that the gallop is not just a faster gait, it's a longer stride. And it looks like it, it needs to go on for days. You need, need to look like you can gallop for 11 minutes, not mm-hmm. be labored and heavy and that type of thing. And I think that's difficult to evaluate unless unless you can see one that's really good. And then you're like, oh, now I see the difference yeah. between that and one that's just going faster and flatter. That's not necessarily what you want. You want something that's going to increase its stride length and cover ground lightly, not sound like a plow horse coming towards you. Yeah. And I think yeah. some of the jumping to the, the ones that are really, really scopy, but don't go forward or just go right. up in the air. That's not, that's not going to get you very far. They want to be careful, but not too careful. That's a lot to ask. It's a lot to ask mm-hmm. a good event horse. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and a, a, probably a lot of that kind of, the, it goes without saying that kind of desire to go forward and that taking to the jump is a lot of the thoroughbred influence. So yep. There's some, there's some that are just beautiful that you would want to ride every day, but you don't get the feeling that they're going to, you got to keep looking at it through the lens of Kentucky or the, which is so yes. cool. I thought it was so cool at Fair Hill, just being out there because for anybody that wasn't there, the young, the young event horse took place right in between the galloping track of the three and the five star, which was just incredible because some of these horses, you saw them zipping up for the last gallop and you thought, man, in a couple of years, that yeah. one's going to be here doing the three or that one can be here doing the five and it's on the same turf. And it's so, you kind of get chills a little bit watching it. It's kind of the future. That's what we're trying to do, right? Yep. I mean, it's, yep. it's, it's the whole point. And you I, see, there's, there's your, there's your 
you could see those horses galloping. Can you put a, can you actually put a description on there? It's more like I feel for the judges because how do you, mm. how do you articulate that feeling you get when you watch those horses gallop? you like, yeah. that's a good gallop, but how do you articulate yeah. that? And how do you say yeah. this other horse doesn't quite have that? Yeah. Whatever that the quality that, that it is. I think that's well, the hard think, part. Yeah, it is. And I think you're so right. Until you see a, a, a slew of horses together, mm-hmm. you don't know until you're watching, you go, that, that one. Like yep. there were a few that said that you were like, that is, that is something. Because I, I don't know if it was you that pointed it out or Tim Holkamp that pointed it out, but it was really that, that difference between just going faster and the length of stride. And it's going to look fat. I mean, it look, should look like you're going, but there were a few of those guys that, I mean, they did look like they were just going to keep going back to the barn. <laughs> it was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it, there was something beautiful and light about it when, when they were, it looked easy. Yes, like it, it exactly. looked, it looked easy. Effortless. It, it, effortless. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even from, again, making time to holding up. I mean, at the end of the day, the majority of what these horses is doing more so than jumping is galloping. Yeah. It needs to be light and, and easy. I think that's sometimes a hard part, too. I know even going overseas, looking at horses, a lot of times we do that in the winter and you're in an indoor, or you're in a ring and you can't get outside to really just have a good gallop, which is so that's why they they judge it. That's why it's a big section yeah. of of the uh but you can, again, if you go back to what you were talking about with the statistics, if you've got a lot of thoroughbred in there, hopefully it can run. <laughs> right, right. And not all of them can. We'd mm-hmm. like to say all of them can, but they, they can't all. Mm-hmm. But they at least, they, they're built to gallop. They're, mm-hmm. they're built that way. They're not built to go up and down. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that certainly helps. Yeah. What do you think about, we've got a lot of conversations going on right now between that now they're, the horses don't all need to be bred to be five-star horses that the championships are happening at three and four-star level and there can be two different models and obviously you've spoken a lot about having the thoroughbred but we are seeing we are seeing an influence of the jumper lines where you're kind of around that 40 percent or 45 percent blood and some obviously a little bit lower than that what are your thoughts on even our sport and the way that it's going and is there going to be this kind of split in two different types of event horses or is that already happening? I mean, I think I think it's already happening. And and again, you have exceptional individuals that can go bes- despite their breeding, not because mm-hmm. of it, but despite mm-hmm. their breeding. I mean, I think it kind of goes down to there's a it's what you like to ride, what the type of ride you'd like, the type of ride that you get along with. That do you like that jumper type a little bit? I don't want to say heavier, but a little bit more. Or do you want to sit there and ride a thoroughbred? And and I mm-hmm. think that. There's definitely a place in the sport for for all of it. And maybe these horses that aren't five-star horses are going to be great at four-star level or three-star level. That's mm-hmm. still upper level. And what where are you? Our team horses for Pan Ams aren't going to be five-star horses. They're probably going to be four-star horses. So there's a place at the upper levels of the sport for, for those horses as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think there's probably going to be, I don't want to say a split, but there always has been. There are the horses that can do five-star and the horses that can never do five-star. They might be mm-hmm. great four-star horses, but they're never going to make that leap. Mm-hmm. And, and that's okay. Like you can't, mm-hmm. they're also going to be training level horses that never go any higher. And that's okay too. So it's a, it's, there's a, this sport is so great because there's so many different, so many different types of horses can succeed at whatever mm-hmm. level that they get to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was there a moment that you decided I'm breeding for the five-star level or 
did it just kind of think I'm just going to do the best I I can with this and it seems to be going this direction. And I think I think that's it. And I do think one thing that we really overlook is getting the horses in the right hands because mm-hmm. you can I can have a horse that's a little difficult that in the wrong hands would never have gotten as far as as he has. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's part of it too is getting these horses to people that there are there are so many good horses in this U, in the US. I am convinced mm-hmm. of it, but we're not getting them to the to people that will go on with them. And right. not all horses that's not a place for all horses, but there's so many horses I think here that we're breeding that could be successful at upper levels mm-hmm. if we could get them in the right hands. I was talking to someone the other day and we were just brainstorming about some stuff as you do. And we were even talking about doing doing like little video promos almost of, of individuals' farms and their little training philosophies and stuff like that. Because on paper, everybody looks, I mean, not everybody, the on same. paper, a lot of people look the same. Yep. Yep. You know, like it's the same. And I, I think we had talked about this a little bit is that it's, it's, uh, different different people work well together, different horses well work well to get together. And if on the rider side, we kind of took a little bit more of a proactive role, not in like really selling our selling ourselves, but just like this is what we do here. This is what's important to us. These are where our priorities are. This is our thoughts and philosophies here. And in like two minutes. And that there's some resource there that even like like breeders or just personalities in general that want to get involved in the sport, even from a, I want to take a clinic with this person, or I want to send a horse to this person, or just got a feel for someone that wasn't just looking at the paper or seeing them ride. People say all the time, oh, watch somebody ride in the warmup. And it's like, that is such a small snapshot. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't tell you the character all the time. I, I don't, I don't know if that's something that would be useful in this type of situation. So uh, Lori Cameron and I have started mm-hmm. uh, this U.S. Event Horse Futurity, which was um, oh I saw that yeah a program yeah. yeah it was a program designed to spot case uh, to spotlight U.S. horses U.S. bred horses and young horse trainers and mm-hmm. this actually is exactly what you were talking about we've had the trainers do vlogs on their training mm-hmm. philosophies and the progress of their young horses in mm-hmm. the hopes that if someone's looking at it and say I really like the way that. Sinead is has trained horses. I want to contact her and see if she will take if she's interested in doing that. And the mm-hmm. vlogs have been really, really interesting because everyone's got a different way or different philosophy, and that's that's right. fine. But to be able to follow and follow the horse's progress has really been has really been cool. Mm-hmm. We have them all up on the website so people can go back and follow everything, and it's really been interesting. So that I, I actually I'm, that's interesting. I did stumble across like probably twenty minutes before we got on the call that Union City horse uh-huh. with Caitlin Classing yep. in a video that she did. I just didn't realize it was coming from that that angle. Yeah. I just picked that up. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So in the hopes that this is somewhere that spotlights the trainers. So mm. we're, we're bringing business to the trainers. Um, mm. Breeders can pick people that they would like to send their horses to. Or like these people train young horses. I'm really interested in having a horse go to them. Or owners can mm. say, look, I'm really interested in sending my horse to, to, to these mm-hmm. young trainers. So we've mm-hmm. tried to kind of spotlight that. Yeah. And some of the horses haven't didn't make it to the championships where they weren't ready or whatever. And that's fine. That's that's part of training. And to have mm-hmm. the trainers be able to say, this just wasn't right for this horse at this time. I think that's mm-hmm. an excellent thing too. Yeah. Yeah. And and where where are those videos? I need to go back because I I mean I just use So the, the whole the <laughs> website the website is the US eventhorsefuturity.com. Mm-hmm. And there's a page with all their links to all their YouTube videos in order for each of the horses. 
Can you talk about the futurity? I mean, I know this is a, a big thing, obviously, in the reining industry, as, and I've heard it so much from that industry, but where did this idea and everything come from on that eye? On so that this side? is really Lori Cameron's idea, and Lori is right now, the, I think she was a number one breeder last year, and I think mm -hmm. she's going to be the number one breeder this year with her horses. She's been really, really successful. So it was all Lori's idea uh, to do this, and so I'm implementing it, and she's the idea person. So, But I have to <laughs> thank Lori because it was a really great idea. So yeah. her idea was to exactly to do this, to to promote U.S. bred horses, to promote U.S. trainers, and to link mm -hmm. the two so that we are developing a pipeline for the future. Mm -hmm. And so our, our premise was that people would enter, they'd pay a nomination fee to enter in January of the horse's four-year-old year, so before they go to the Young Event Horse Championships, and they'll do a vlog, so video mm -hmm. vlog on the horse every other month, like mm -hmm. how they started the horse, here we are, we're doing this, she's getting ready to do this. This is the problem we've had this month. She's not liking the bit or whatever, we're gonna to need to change bits. And then following this horses on the journey to the championships. So this year, I think we had 19 horses that entered, six of them made it to the championships mm. and they didn't go for various reasons. Some of them got hurt because they're horses. Some of them just weren't ready. They, the horse was just not ready to jump at the championships because that's a pretty big deal yeah. up at the championships. Yeah. Like you need to, the horses need to be ready. We had one a couple years ago that got accidentally pregnant and they, she was getting really fat like the month before the championships oh and it turned out she was pregnant. So she didn't participate. So <laughs> just things like that. So yeah. we followed these horses on their journey and then we award all the, all the money, all the entry fees, at, the futurity entry fees back as prize money. And so mm. I think we gave out $10,000 worth of prize money this year to, six, to the six horses. So the winning horse got $5,000. We also gave out money to the breeder. So the breeders mm -hmm. recognized as well, like they do in Germany, because I, that's important. That's an important yeah. part of it. And we'd love yeah. to expand this further. I think we're limited, first of all, that the championships occur in the East Coast and the West Coast. And we've got a whole country in the middle. I can't mm -hmm. do anything about that, unfortunately. And just getting people even to come on the East Coast to get to the championships is difficult. Yeah. But yeah. it's at least a way to, to spotlight these trainers. And I do know that we've had several horses that were sent to a particular trainer uh, because mm. they saw the vlogs from the year before. And that's they really amazing. liked the way that people did that. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, follow up and watch some of those because I feel like, I mean, that we've got to move with the times, right? Like we've got to <laughs> get, get that access out there because that's the only way we're going to get the information out yep. in this great big country. And the amount of times I would, I mean, most of us really in the horses, horse industry would prefer to watch horse videos all day long than, than be scrolling through Facebook. So that's a good, yeah, that'll be cool to follow, to follow up on. What questions am I not asking <laughs> about, like, it, again, it's just such a, we're here trying to do this. We're here trying to bridge this, this gap between riders and breeders. So what am I, what am I missing? What do we want people to know about U.S. breeding and the riders to know and what's important. So I would like, I would like the riders to get owners involved as well. Uh, what a chance to own a young horse and watch it come to the championships and how exciting that was. And then to go on with their career rather than, as you said, I'd rather see owners investing in some young horses rather than one upper level horse that if it breaks, you're, you're, you're done. Let's say mm -hmm. you have two or three young horses. One of them turns out to be a superstar. One of them, we decide that it's not going to be an upper level horse, but we can go ahead and sell it and get our money back. And, and maybe one's kind of an a intermediate level horse where we end up selling it to a young rider or something like that. So we're, we're seeing these horses progress. We're seeing their progress. 
we're, but we're also not putting all our eggs in one basket. Yeah. Yeah. I like that idea. When it feels, it feels, feels kind of the same from a right. It's a lot of, uh, quite stressful on a rider's point of view for the one horse and to spend a lot of money on one horse but it feels and it almost for lack of a better way of saying it it feels like it's not always it's not dishonest but you feel like such a pressure to that everything's great everything's great everything's great because there's been so much investment on the front side that it adds a level of pressure that if you can spread it out a little bit, it feels more real and more authentic in what you're doing as opposed to like, we're going to just go all in on this thing and this dream. And then it just feels like in, in a industry that's already filled with a lot of, a lot of hopes and dreams hanging on four legs. Yeah. Uh, it feels like a lot. Whereas if you can kind of spread it out a little bit and just take a moment, I remember being 25 and I had, there was another professional that was a little bit older than me and he bought a three-year-old or a four-year-old. And I thought, well, by the time he's 30, maybe that horse <laughs> yeah. will be ready. Yep. 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 And I was like, by the time I'm 30, I'm going to be this and that and whatever. Yep. <laughs> you know? And uh, it just goes by so quickly. It doesn't like all of a sudden I said to somebody the other day that I was going to look at a couple of three-year-olds somewhere and they, they should look at this, that, whatever. And she said, I don't want a three-year-old. I'm like, it's going to be four in two months. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Literally going to be four in two months. And, but it is, it's a mindset. It's a, it's a mindset that we have to shift and take a breath and realize like the reason that we're getting kind of, we're catching up, but the reason that we're getting where we are really and getting beaten by a lot of foreign countries is that there's just more tradition, more time, more thought, more structure, more system. And we have these bouts of talent and this, this over here and this excitement and this enthusiasm, but it's on a, on a foundation that doesn't have a lot of roots all the time. And it feels like we just need to take a second, acknowledge that, and then kind of figure out, okay, if we take a deep breath and, and maybe work a little bit more in a way that U.S. breeding isn't just on the shoulders of the breeders, that we brunt that as riders, as some of our owners and things like that as well, and kind of share in that journey. It seems like kind of an exciting idea. Well, I think it is. And it's almost like you need, uh, I would say, talent scouts mm-hmm. to, to go out and like, well, here's a group of horses we can look at. We pick three of them and we'll, we'll set, maybe they're three-year-olds, maybe they're two-year-olds. They go sit in a field mm-hmm. for two years and then they're ready to go or whatever. I, I do think that that having something, I want to say in the pipeline or moving up mm-hmm. is, the, is the way to do it. That you have, and I'll use Doug for an example. He's bought uh, four from me. And he bought the first one as a yearling, then he bought another one, then he bought another one. So they've moved up through the levels and now two, one doing five star, one doing four star and one doing three star. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yes, they've been lucky. They haven't necessarily been killed themselves yet because they're horses, (laughs) but that type of kind of thinking more forward. So maybe buy that yearling and find some place to store it for two years rather Mm -hmm. than I can only buy a horse I can ride right now. I only want to compete right Right. now. I want to go three star, four star right now. I think that's the, the whole premise behind the Germans is that is the progressive system where we're like you said we're ready to go out and go win right now we're not mm-hmm. ready to think about well what happens a year from now or two years from three years yeah we don't think about that yeah. yeah yeah totally well an interesting you say like a talent spotter or something it would be cool and I think a lot of us are, are trying to to build connections in people that are more educated than us in certain fields. I mean, that's, I mean, I think a couple of weeks ago I sent you a horse. I'm like, what does this look like to you? Yeah. <laughs> and I think having that, that access and availability of, of people that have been in, in 
the, the breeding realm for 30 years, you're going to see things a lot and know a lot more and hopefully help educate people along right. the way. So it all comes down to education. It all yeah. comes down to education. It, it comes down to developing an eye. Mm. An eye for what? And not just an eye for a horse, for eye what you want to ride. Like yeah. my eye, what I want to ride is not necessarily what you want to ride, but mm-hmm. developing that over it. Well, yeah, look at the breeding on this horse. This is like the horse I rode. I really like mm-hmm. that type of horse. This is what I'm going to go start looking for. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's important too. And a lot of times in the past, the riders really haven't been concerned with the breeding at all. If it goes and jumps, mm-hmm. I'm good. Right. And now right. you need to start thinking, well, why did I like this horse? Yeah. What kind of breeding is behind this horse of mine that mm-hmm. I can start looking for? And you're mm-hmm. going to find that in the U.S. these days. You are going to find whatever breeding they have in Germany, you're going to find in the U.S. Mm-hmm. You might have to look for it, but you're going to find it because the, with the yeah. frozen semen and everything that we're getting, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to find that breeding here. So, and you've just, you've just bought a uh, uh, young filly, right? That's coming okay. over, or is over? She's not even weaned yet. So yeah. So she's coming over hopefully at the beginning of December. So explain, explain the, the thoughts behind that. And, and so one of the things we don't have here in the U.S. is a, a strong, I want to say, mother line for a lot of our horses. Mm-hmm. We have, and, and my horses included, what I bred a lot of times are off-track thoroughbreds. I love the thoroughbred pedigree. I love the, the bloodlines, the sport bloodlines are behind it, but they're mm-hmm. not proven mother lines. So what I bought mm-hmm. is a filly that I think in her first four generations, she has 60 ancestors that have jumped over one point or jumped 1.5 meter or better. And she's by uh, a, uh, a son of Upsilon who was the winner at Le Lyon and has had, mm-hmm. I think he had, I think the six-year-old one this year there that was by Upsilon at Le Lyon. And I think the three-year-old French national champion is by Upsilon as well. The, mm-hmm. So I'm stacking genetics that I can bring over here and then breed this mare. And mm-hmm. well, when she gets to be old enough to breed, that'll be a little <laughs> yeah. but I'm, I'm thinking, thinking ahead yeah. uh, and breed this mare and produce more horses with a stronger performance line behind them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just don't have access to the the frozen semen that we get in the U.S. for some of these older stallions is is not good anymore. Mm. And I don't have access to that type of mother line over here. I can't buy mares by Heraldic over here. I can't mm-hmm. buy mares by Herald 3. I just, I, I just, you can't buy them over here. Or mm-hmm. I can't afford them if, even if I could. But the, right. the Europeans aren't letting those mares go. They're breeding those mares. So I'm hoping by right. buying this young filly, I will bring those bloodlines over here and can breed more exceptional horses. Mm. So it feels like the... The, the trajectory keeps going, right? Well, it like, does. Okay. And that's what it's supposed to. It's supposed to yeah. keep going. You're supposed to keep trying to do better and better. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that's hopefully so cool. she'll turn out to be everything and we'll we'll go from there. But that's, that was my interest in her was not as a performance horse. It's as a, mm-hmm. it's as a she has a performance career, great, but I'm mm-hmm. buying her for her genetics. Yeah, yeah. You got a job already, love. Yep. Um, yeah, she's yeah, she's <laughs> she's lined up. Or I'm like, who am I going to breed her to first? So, she hasn't even been you're yet. passing the time. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I, got, I can I can look at all sorts of things. So uh, that's so cool. Well, I'm going to move into some of these questions that I sent you earlier. If you are if you're all right with that, um, yep. we always we always wrap up our our podcast, and I've had you on here grilling you for an hour. So I'd love to find out a little bit more about you. So let's start with the first question, which is, what is the biggest lesson a horse has taught you about yourself? What I need is more patience. 
<laughs> and I think that I'm kind of person that I want to get stuff done. I want to get it done now. I have an agenda. I have a checkbox. I have all these checkboxes that I check off. I'm one of those. I have lists. I have checkboxes. And what a horse has taught me is that you can't, you can't do that. You, mm. you have to go at their pace. I can't check off today. I'm going to do a flying change. And tomorrow I'm going to do two flying changes. And I, I can't do that. that. That horse has taught me. And it's taught me how little patience I actually have. It's improving mm. as I get older. But like you're talking about that 25-year-old person that doesn't want to buy a three-year-old, as you get older, you kind of realize that there are some things you just can't rush. Mm. So, yeah, 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 I know. <laughs> Damn like it. I, want this, I want this little weanling filly to grow up and be able to be bred and like, <laughs> I can't wait. But there's some things you just, you just got to wait for. I was thinking that when you were talking about kind of these yearlings and two-year-olds, it's like, you need like a secret 10 acres that you can't see and you don't know you have it. And, yeah. you, yeah. <laughs> and somebody out there, like you like buy it and then you just forget about it. And then all of a sudden you don't realize because if, it, if you're looking in the barn every day, I mean, it's, it's, it's come on, come on, come on. Yep. Yep. Uh, do you have a favorite training or competition mantra you reference regularly? I'm pretty much a chicken. Like I did do intermediate I don't know, 15 years ago, and I like threw up every time before I'd go into the start box and that kind of stuff. And so my mantra really is just like, it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be fun. It's mm -hmm. supposed to be fun. And sometimes I can convince myself of that. Sometimes I can't. Mm -hmm. I did do my elementary competition this weekend on my three-year-old, and she was a low score for the entire day of all the competitors at Plantation. That's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. She got a 16.8 in the walk trot test. How is that even that? How is that even possible? It's like all how nine. Is that even possible? Yeah, That's it amazing. Was, yes, and then we jumped all ten of our logs. Although we were, we had to prove that we didn't have a technical elimination at log number three because they didn't see me jump it. I'm using jump in quotation marks. So I survived my technical elimination inquiry <laughs> because I had video from someone. So we ended up winning. So. That's incredible. Congratulations. Yeah. So I was not quite as nervous as that as I was doing intermediate, but still my, my mantra is it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be fun. So. Supposed to be fun. Uh, well, I did a podcast a couple of days ago and that was the, the lady, that's what she was saying. So, and, but she finished it with a damn it. It's supposed to be fun. <laughs> damn it. Well, it, was, it. I was okay at elementary. It didn't need to be a damn it at elementary. Although we did survive all the costumes. There was, there were, it was a costume Halloween thing. So there were some angels with wings that were flapping around and stuff. So I got to give this Philly credit. She did, she did okay. So that is so cool. Congratulations. Uh, is there a piece of advice that someone gave you along the way that you still reference today? There's always another competition. Mm -hmm. Like there's always, it doesn't have to be today. Like if things, and I guess it, maybe not even in competition, there's always another day. If you don't mm -hmm. get accomplished today, there's always tomorrow. So mm -hmm. and that goes along with the whole patience thing, because I tend to be a get it done person and just taking a breath and like, it's all, there's always something else. There's always another day to, to do this, to work on this, to have a, to go to a different event. And mm -hmm. I, I try hard to remember that because as an amateur, like this is your, this is your money. You're, you're, everyone's depending on you. You're, you're riding instructor. You want to do well. You want to prove yourself. You want to mm. prove to your husband that all the money that you've spent on lessons and stuff is, is working out. And it's, sometimes it's hard to remember that, that it's okay to mm. say, wait for another day. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yep. What do you do when you are seeking inspiration? So as far as my inspiration is like, I like being educated by other things. Like I'm really interested in, I've taken some natural horsemanship things. I went and 
I spent some time with a John Lyons trainer. I'm interested in other things. And I think just getting inspiration, like if I'm having a problem with a horse, like what can I do differently that I maybe mm. didn't think about? So I, I just like learning new things. I always get inspired. Oh, I need to go out and, and teach my horse how to ground drive with no rain, with no halter or something like that. Just, I get mm -hmm. inspiration that way. Like just being educated, trying to find different yeah. answers. Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't know what you don't know. We right. have, we have, uh, we started a couple of years ago hosting clinics at our farm, like three or four clinics in the winter time. Well, it's on like a Tuesday. We'll do it on a Tuesday, but we have like Kathy Barr and Dan James. And we, we tend to bring in people that are from different genres per se. And it's yeah. like, I was saying to someone the other day, I'm always like, oh no, there's only 10 spots and I won't take one. I'll just watch. And then I'm there and I'm like bugging the clinic. I'm like, can I bring you a Subway sandwich and can you help me at lunch? Can we get up at 6am and then I could do this? Cause, cause you think, oh, I'm going to, I need to train. I need to ride. And Tick right. and I have at this point learned no, <laughs> we're going to want to sit there the whole time and watch. Yep. We're going to want to have a spot because uh, most of most of the things that you struggle with, like somebody's done it, somebody's had right. that struggle before and they've figured it out. So yep. it's like. And much better than you would have ever thought of. I mean, you're like, <laughs> right. oh, I never thought about that. And totally. just, just stuff like that. Just why reinvent the wheel? So that's how I yeah. get inspiration. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then looking, uh, at stall looking at stallion videos, that's always inspiring because I'm like, oh, I just need more mares. <laughs> I just need more mares. <laughs> when you when you're going and kind of like, where do you look like? Where do you go to when you're kind of looking at stallions? Like where where do you? I mean, well, obviously, just, before it was the Chronicle. But. Yeah. So, so, you know, there's so many online now. So you'll. I'll hear about a stallion and I'm like, oh, that breeding sounds really interesting. Or, oh, there's a horse by that stallion. And then I'll go and you can find videos any place. Like mm. any stallion you look at now, you can go and find see videos. And I'm mm. like, oh, look at that. And then you can find videos of their foals. And it's just amazing what's online. I mean, you could just search it and you'll have three foal videos from this stallion yeah. that, that you never even heard about until today. And then right. there are all his foal videos on there. There's videos of him competing that type of thing. So I think just you kind of hear about something and like the breeding, that's what I'll do is I'll hear about a stallion or I'll look at the stallion. I'm like, oh, let me look at his breeding and, and go from there. What is the, like the breeders network like? Like, is there a, is there a pretty strong uh, community amongst breeders in the U.S. or is it still a little spotty? It's, it's pretty fragmented. I think mm -hmm. that, again, it's a lot of it's regional and, it, and we're so different in what we produce. The dressage mm -hmm. breeders aren't really interested in the type of horses I produce. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not interested in a lot of times the horses they're producing uh, from my breeding program. And so mm -hmm. I think it tends to be very, very spotty. Uh, mm -hmm. Vent breeding is really, really hard to do. It, it, it's, just, it's really hard to produce that type of horse. And it's not just the breeding. You have to produce the athlete first, but you got to produce the mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, that's really hard. It's really hard to produce, to have a horse. And like I said, a lot of it, event horse success is due to the training that they get. It's not just the breeding. You have to have the athlete, but you've got to have the mind that's been developed that way too. And did you go, I'm, I'm going off the lines of the questions, but I know that I have another question that's got nothing to do with those other questions. Did you, uh, you know, like, did you really narrow down into event horse breeding just because you like the sport so much? Because it does seem like it would, I don't know if easier is the right word, but you'd have a bigger range of success if you went into a, just a dressage discipline or a show jumping discipline and then you ended up with the occasional event horse 
So I think that I went into it because I like that type of horse. That's what I like to mm. ride. Like that's my ride. I, I like mm. that type of horse. And the other th- reason is that honestly, it's really hard to sell a dressage horse with any type of thoroughbred in it. Like, mm. I'm sorry, you just can't. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. I have a, a thoroughbred mare I want pre-St. George on that I trained myself. And she, went, she was the highest scoring mare in the U.S. And for both, she was top eight for Hanoverian. She was top for uh, Rhineland. And she had a foal by a Grand Prix stallion. And I couldn't get anyone to even come look at it because it was half thoroughbred. Mm. And here's a, here's a mare that got my silver medal that I trained myself off the mm. track. And, mm. and uh, inspection scores, more mare performance tested, and no one would even look at it. So mm. to me, I really like that thoroughbred in my bloodlines. And I'm not willing to compromise and yeah. go to a straight dressage horse. It's, it's horses I want to ride. So that's kind of how I got into it. It's like, if I were a good rider, and actually had some courage, which <laughs> I don't anymore. This is the type of horse I would like to ride. So that's huh. what I got into it. That's an, that's, an, that's so like fascinating because you you have had so much success, and it comes from like a real rooted, grounded, personal. Like this is what I want. It's not I'm not producing and doing this thing for other people. Like this is from from my soul, and it right, now right. it's just like wow. Yep. Hmm. Have you had an experience or adversity separate from horses in your life you feel has directly influenced you as a horsewoman? And I think this comes down to being a, I wouldn't say it's an adversity, but being a veterinarian, mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of horses. And I do think there, there's some horses, just like there's some people that can't be fixed. Mm-hmm. And they can't be fixed for physical reasons. They can't be fixed for emotional reasons or something like that. And I do think that I'm okay with saying that. And like, I think that that, that has kind of tempered things. Like, I mean, there's some, there's sometimes when it's just not things, things can't be fixed and hopefully Mm. not with my own horses, but I'm okay with saying that. Like, Mm -hmm. and I don't say that's really adversity. It's just stuff that I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it definitely is an influencer, isn't it? Like it's something that you've seen that's really sad or disruptive and then but it also you can take it in and go and it probably gives you that full range like we were talking about earlier where you can kind of center yourself and look at something and see it for what it is instead of right what I want it to be what I want it to be yeah like I I can't I can't fix this horse for whatever reason Mm -hmm. mentally or physically it and Mm -hmm. I'm okay like I there's some things that can't be fixed yeah yeah I would say that's one of the, I know uh, we're so lucky with our veterinary care here and I can feel like Dr. Lisa Casanova is uh, one of my vets and I can feel how hard it is for her to tell me that something's wrong or there's been a big problem. Most of the time I'm like, it's okay. Like I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, just, he's like, I'm just so sorry for you. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, it's, we've all been around this long enough, but to be a vet and realize that the majority of the time that you're getting called is when things are wrong. Like yeah. yep. things are going wrong that you got it. It takes a special type of person to be able to put that someplace and yeah, not have it weigh you down every step of the way. Yep. Hmm. Hmm. Well, this has been so, so fast. Oh, I wanted to tell you something before I got off this call. I, we were talking a couple weeks ago and you, you had brought up Slate River and was, I remember being at Kentucky when, uh, when this is one of the, the, was it the first five-star horse that you bred? Yeah. Yeah. He was the first five-star horse. Yeah. So this is a fabulous horse that Heather Morris rode. And I, I remember when you brought that up, I, th- I thought there's something about this horse. I remember there's some conversation I remember. And it was, there was an agent in 
England that called me <clears throat> in, in like 2011, 2012. And she said, I have a buyer that's got basically an unlimited budget. What in the US? What is the nicest course in the US? And, and I said this, if you can buy that one, <laughs> I'm like, I, I said, if you can buy that one, there's that one. And I think there was one other one. And I said, though, I don't think they're going to be for sale. I don't know. But that that is one hell of a horse. And that was I just thought I would I was it just it's funny when things connect a decade later. That was a really, really fabulous horse. So and he, and and he had a totally like, well, Riverman, his sire Riverman obviously produced a lot of eventers, but his dam had a dressage background. And that was back mm. when I didn't know any better. So there you go. All the all the planning and stuff that you can do and look it was successful despite despite everything I'm just talked about. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I remember was that 2012 when she ended up not hearing the whistle? Like there was something that happened at the ditch wall and she ran for like a minute, then realized she hadn't jumped the jump or it was a penalty and she had to turn around and go back and I don't remember. I don't remember. Yeah. But that horse, he was he was not easy as a as a baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if he's easy as an adult. He was not easy as a baby. Yeah. Well, so. talk about that ending up in in the right in the right place. Yeah. Some tough tough West Coast ladies that that got some good stuff out of there. So huge congratulations on everything. And and I'm in awe of what you're doing for for U.S. eventing for horses. And I really I think our our listeners are going to connect. I think there's going to be some change. I think I've, I'm inspired to do a few different things. And I just, uh, I just, I just thank you for your vision and not only your vision. I mean, you've done a hell of a lot more than just think about it. It's been a big, a big job. Well, I just, like I said, there's so many, so many good horses here in the U S that, that we could be using or, or discovering developing. And Mm -hmm. I just, I just, I'd love to see that come to fruition. I'd love to see people say, instead of going to Ireland this week, mm-hmm. I know of three people we can talk to to, to find horses. You know what I mean, like, yeah. that's what I'd love. Yeah. Check with us and, first. And how would, I mean, I don't know if you want to even give out some information because you might get your, your door knocked down, but where if some if somebody is thinking about how do I go down this road, can they reach out to you? Should they reach out to us? Like, where where can they connect to find so right now on the U.S. Event Horse Futurity website, there's mm-hmm. a page that says Breeders and Trainers link. And mm-hmm. there is a Google spreadsheet on there that has, I think, 45 or 50 names on it right now that's searchable by area, it's searchable by name, it's searchable by state, it's searchable by whether you start horses, whether you uh, have young horse, event horse experience, whether you are five, what level you've ridden to, what level Mm -hmm. you produced horses to. I'd love to have that information disseminated in a way that people could could make these connections because that's that's what it's about. It's a community. It's about a community. And so that's a start. And if people are interested, they can Mm -hmm. email me from the website and... Mm -hmm. It's eventhorsefugiherdy at gmail.com. We have a Google form that, again, I didn't make, but someone else made mm-hmm. that they can fill in that information. It'll self-populate the, the spreadsheet. So maybe a awesome. place for people to start looking. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely get that link up on the Ride IQ community on Great. social media sites. And we'll just, we'll just spread that out there and get things going and help how we can. So huge great. thank you, Didi. Much I'm so and I'm so happy that your event went so well. It's so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I was really worried. I, we'd had one one cross rail stadium school, and she'd never been in a war, she'd never been in a warm up with other horses. She'd never <laughs> seen costumes. She'd never mm-hmm. actually. I'd ridden around my field, but I've never actually gone cross country like cantered across a field with her. <laughs> I mean, so that she was she was great. So yeah. 
very yeah, it was awesome. it was a, awesome. a, a resounding crushing of the, all the opposition. So in <laughs> <laughs> my walk trot that. test. Yeah, I mean, again, you're going full scale from from the young horses on the west coast to the five star horses on the east coast to the sergeant division at plantation. Yeah, there you go. There you go. In that pedigree of it. All right. Well, w- well. Hopefully, you're getting a little bit of downtime. Maybe things will settle down. Probably not. Well, now we can start thinking for next year for the futurity. So start gearing up for that and figuring whether what we can do to, to make it bigger and better and attract more horses and more people to the vlogs and go from there. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll do it. I'm going to go check those out right now. Good. <laughs> All right, Didi. Thank you All so right, much. Thank you. Okay. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Before you go, I just want to let you know more about Ride IQ. At its core, Ride IQ gives everyone access to instruction from the best equestrian coaches in the world. It might sound impossible, but with Ride IQ, you get access to the private mobile app that has hundreds of on-demand, listen-while-you-ride audio lessons taught by top riders and coaches in eventing, hunter jumpers, and dressage. Here's how it works. You look through the app and choose a lesson based on your horse or a skill you're working on. There are lessons for green off-the-track thoroughbreds and nervous horses horses and horses that are behind the leg, as well as lessons that teach every stage of skills like shoulder in or trot lengthenings. Then you tack up and press play and you have a top coach like Doug Payne or Leslie Law or Gina Smith in your ear guiding you every step of the way. If you enjoyed today's episode, it is always appreciated if you can take a moment to share the podcast with your friends and family and leave a review on your podcast app. The best way to support the podcast is to become a Ride IQ member at ride-iq.com. And when you do, we hope you're excited to see that InStride is just one of multiple podcast shows on the app, including hack chats, conversations with coaches, and more. And lastly, I wanted to let you know that our friends over at Major League Eventing also have a podcast. And if you enjoyed this show, I think you would also really enjoy their show. Just search for the Major League Eventing podcast in your podcast app and give it a listen. 